Welcome to Roger. First time at the Saudi class. He's good. He's good. He's quick. That's that's the thing. He's quick. That's that's it. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Well, we've got a double class tonight, so uh, I'll try and hold you back on the first part so that we have time for the second part. Um, a little shout out to the righteous Callie Ann, who lives in Canada, eh? And uh, I, want, uh, I want us to practice, uh, I know... Greg has certainly done this a few times. As Tzadikim, we are going to receive stuff. You're going to get texts. You're going to get articles. You're going to get perspectives. You're going to get these thoughts from folks, and they're going to say, what do you think of this? Or, is this right? Or, wow, should I be concerned? You know, something like that. So we're going to practice that tonight, uh, quickly, paragraph by paragraph, as we look at, uh, <laughs> as we look at a, a newsletter that comes out from a, uh, I'm going to call a non-Jewish ministry. You won't get the joke on that until the end of this, but there we go. So we're going to look at Karaites and calendars, and, uh, and then we're going to talk about guys and gals. All right, everybody got the program? You know what we're doing. All right. So our... Uh, our first piece here is on Nehemiah Gordon. I know you want to say Nehemiah, but uh, it's Nehemiah Gordon. And that is actually what he looks like now. The last time I saw him, he was uh, dressed in rabbinic garb, all black with the hat, the whole deal, um, orthodox. And he was in the back of a very, very large auditorium. And as he, with his little uh, mic, came down the aisle, he was literally disrobing and removing his rabbinic garb uh, by way of effect so that when he got up to the stage, he was rolling up his white sleeves and then showed us how to do the ceremonial hand washing and then proceeded to make fun of it. Uh, Nehemiah Gordon, according to Wikipedia, is a Karite Jew. He was born to a Jewish family of rabbis, which he himself mentioned the time that I saw him. He rejected the Talmud and became a Karite. Nehemiah is a native of Chicago, but has lived in Jerusalem, Israel, since making Aliyah in 1993. What does he say about himself? Karism, Karaism is the original form of Judaism as prescribed by God in the Torah. You didn't know that. Okay, welcome. Karai Judaism rejects later additions to the Tanakh, such as the rabbinic oral law, and places the ultimate responsibility of interpreting the Bible on each individual. 
Karaism does not reject biblical interpretation, but rather holds every interpretation up to the same objective scrutiny, regardless of its source. And as we might see as we begin, um, there's some really cool things. Some of that sounds good. Some of it we might even agree with, and yet, as we look at it in practice, um, we may see some differences. Nehemia Gordon's... uh, not his latest book, but the book before that, uh, its focus was on um, Jesus and how Karaism could uh, potentially agree with his interpretation if the Matthew passage was just yanked, 23.3, regarding the rabbi sitting in the seat of Moses, the Pharisee sitting in the seat of Moses. Um, So I... I, uh, Heartily recommend Torah Resources' response article to his book. If you haven't read it, read it. If you haven't read his book, okay. So, uh, yes, please. I've also seen him speak a couple times. Uh, his book, the Hebrew Yeshua versus the Great Jesus. Uh, I would recommend you read it. I think everybody should read it. Uh, his premise kind of pegged to his his uh, view on Matthew 23. His premise is essentially that Yeshua was a Karaite. Okay? Um, so I read that book and then I immediately went and got uh, Rabbi Harvey Fox's book, Jesus the Pharisee. Right. And read, read that read because they're they're coming, they're ascribing things to Yeshua, and they're coming at it from two different perspectives. They're, they're ascribing, in most cases, noble things sure. to Yeshua. It's, it's not a, yeah. it's not a ding neither fest. Neither one of them are, uh, neither one of them are, are uh, you know, trying to. Uh, neither one of them believe in that Yeshua is the Messiah, but neither one of them are, are, are trying to disregard or disrespect or dismiss Yeshua. They both believe that he uh, was a good Jew and that he, you know, uh, you know, so, but it's interesting how, you know, Nehemiah's view is that he uh, was most likely what would be considered today a Karite Jew, uh, but then, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Falk, who is an Orthodox rabbi, uh, has a view that, no, he was, he was a Pharisee and, and aligned very closely with Hillel. There you go. So, just be aware. Take a look. So, uh, Nehemia Gordon's ministry puts out uh, these Karite Corner newsletters, and uh, I was sent number 587 and asked for my, uh, my thoughts on it. So, we're going to look at this newsletter real quick. It's eight slides. It's real quick. It's got a paragraph or two on each one. I'm going to put a paragraph up. Give you a chance to read it. I'll read it out loud for those who are in Gastonia and maybe haven't learned to read. You know. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and then we'll we'll hit each paragraph and see what happens. So when is Passover? Is the title of this particular newsletter. So here's our our first uh, paragraph, and I have copied it verbatim uh, from their site. So this is. Uh, The spelling errors are not mine. 
uh, and I, I think that still said Pesach and not Pesach, but uh, Passover, Pesach, will begin this Wednesday night, March 27, at sunset. Or wait, is that March 25th or March 26th? Maybe it's in late April. If you're new to the biblical feasts, then your head must be spinning, trying to keep track of it all. There are several issues that are confusing many people, and I'm going to do my best to try and help sort it all out. What's your first and initial reaction to his opening paragraph? Jewish months and dates, yeah. He's going to go through it. Suggesting that you can't anticipate a date. Impossible to anticipate. Good, yeah. He seems to be definitely on the uh, calculating is a problem scenario. Anything else? His variance is pretty wide there. I mean, you're not just talking about maybe, okay, your verse, is it sunset today or is it sunset tomorrow? He's going a month and a difference, potentially. Right, why would that be? It's not, that that not, is not that that is the result of the Aviv. Right, because they move the Aviv around depending on when they see stuff. Well, right. So Precisely. That, but it all triggers on when they see the Aviv. The Aviv, by the way, is even what it means. Spring. spring. Um, and it's in reference to the barley, which, as you guys already know, is the crop that is harvested at that time of year. So, what what their what his view is is that uh, Nissan one. Can't, is only reckoned Which is the shall be the first months for us. Right. Nissan one is reckoned based on when you see the ripe barley in Israel, and so they go out at the time of year when they expect to see the barley ripening, and they inspect. And if they don't see it, then they know it's the next. It's basically the next new moon because. Obviously, Nissan 1 always is on a new moon, right? And then from there, once you know Nissan 1, then you can count off your 14 days to Passover. Okay. So, so everybody understands, or should, you should understand, that if you're not going to follow greater Israel with regard to the timing of the calendar, and you're going to look for yourself as to when things happen, then you're either going to be on the same sheet of music or you will be a month early or you will be a month late. There's no in-between. It's never going to be off by like 16 days. That never can happen. It will always be a month short or a month long. Or it will be right on. Okay? Does everybody understand why? There we get it. Because we're going to determine... Are we adding a leap year, a leap, uh, another month, a dart two, for leap year, and therefore we're going to start the calendar a month later, or are we not? It's as simple as that. Why would we add another month? It's not a trick question. To, to keep, yeah, to keep Nissan in spring, because it's a lunar calendar. It doesn't line up with the sun. So you've got to adjust it. It's called intercalation, and you have to do that seven times out of 19 years. Without that, you end up with Pesach in, like, Winter. November. Yeah. Well, Ramadan for, for, yeah. for Muslims. Moves all the time. It's, it's, yeah. It's 
They don't intercalate. That's exactly right. Yes, Gideon. I was wondering, is it the first of the month or whenever the new moon that they go and do that check? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're trying to determine when the, when the, is this new moon that's coming up going to be Nissan 1 or Adar 2? It's as simple as that. That's the only choice. Okay? So, all right. Just real quick, doesn't that sort of end up happening to Adar 2? Doesn't that kind of end up happening to a Karite anyway? If oh, no, no question. Yeah, no question. It turns into like two months. Yeah, they will enter, well, it can't. It, they must intercalate just as the greater Israeli calendar will. They must. Seven times out of 19 years. You have to. It's mathematical. You can't not do it. It's which seven years are they going to be. It's as simple as that. So, yeah, they do put in an Adar too. The question is, are they doing it when greater Israel is doing it? Or are they doing it when they think they should do it? Um. Is your head supposed to spin with regard to the calendar? I, I mean, that's what I notice right there. Why is it supposed to be clear? What makes it clear for regular Joes like me? <laughs> I would say the familiarity. I mean, it, it is going to make your head spin if, if you're used to just the Western calendar. Okay, so if he's talking to, to Gentiles that are just coming into a Messianic movement, sure, your head might spin. What causes our heads not to spin besides familiarity with the whole thing? That's right. And there is the fundamental difference. Remember his bio. He rejected rabbinic authority. Therefore... Every time he reads in the scripture that something must be done, he's the guy that has to do it. Because there is no rabbinic authority in to, to do it. What's really funny about that is this reckoning according to the Yemeen Barley is, um, is the way it was done. Right? But that's not described in the text of the Torah. <laughs> Hold that one. That's it. I've got that one coming. Yes, sir. The carrots, does this cause them, if they take this stance on a lot of issues, to functionally reinvent the wheel over and over again on so many issues that have been settled for, I don't know, millennia? Yeah, exactly right. But, and Taylor, quite frankly, I mean, uh, and I want to hear you, hold on. Uh, to me, that's a really important aspect of Bella Torah. Right. We, we look at the rabbis first, to see, after we've looked at the scripture, we look to see, they studied it longer than us, we're the noobs, we're the Gentiles, what did they come up with? And most of the time we go, hey, well, that makes sense, I get it. Sometimes we go, what? And that's, that's where the fun comes in. And we, and we make our choice, right? And, you know, Rick Spurlock's got a great article on that, and, and, and that's, that's where there's some differences, even in our own community. And that splendid variety, to me, is not a problem. It's a blessing. Putting the Hemia Gordon's anti-rabbinical bias aside, sincerely, and I think most Karens are just trying, they, they wrestle with the, the, the fact that the scripture is going to be different than what the modern uh, calendar is. So it's just a sincere desire just to give as close to the word as possible. And you, you do have to give them credit for having that, that uh, desire. 
You have to give them credit. I'm going to try and avoid it the whole night. All right. So, yeah. Second paragraph. The first confusion has to do with how to begin the Hebrew month. In 359 of the Common Era, the Romans established the Sanhedrin, abolished the Sanhedrin, and rabbi and a rabbi named Hillel II replaced the biblical calendar with a calculated one. Well, you know, you raise a point that isn't in the rest of your article, Greg. Did you hear what he said? He created a pretty darn good one. It's off like six minutes on a thousand years. With no computers. He didn't even have a a smartphone. (laughs) What? I know. Holy cow. iOS 7 wasn't there? That's right. Abacus 7. That's right. So let's, let's, let's remember this. This is not a false statement. This is a true statement. Why did Rabbi Hillel come up with a calculated calendar? Primarily. To unify an Israel in diaspora that was away from the land. Exactly right. And with no Sanhedrin. If you've got, if, if we, if, as we believe, the elders are to determine for us and for the nation when the calendar is what, and now that body is gone, and most of us are not even in the land, what is, what is it that's going to give us national unity? Okay. Did you notice that uh, he made a distinction between the calculated calendar and the biblical calendar? That's interesting. So let's just stop for a second, if we could. And, and let's look at our, the walls of our timeline. Um, so I just want to review, since I don't know that Roger's seen this very often. So if I start here today, 2000 of the Common Era, um, back up 1,000 years per wall, I'm at 1,000 of the Common Era. Who's the tzaddik in that corner? Rashi, who did the first line-by-line commentary of the... And then did the line-by-line commentary of the, the rest of the Tanakh. No computer. <laughs> thousand years earlier we have an amazing tzaddik at zero and that would be Yeshua HaMashiach a thousand years earlier we've got David HaMelech David the King a thousand years earlier at 2000 before the common era we have another one Avraham Avinu Abraham our father a thousand years before him at uh, 3000 before the common era Noach right and then a thousand years before him, Adam, the first Adam, Harishon. Okay, so I got the master in this corner. Where, where, where do we see the first Karaites? Are, are they here with King David? No, um, at the mountain with Moses. Did they go into the diaspora from Bavli, Babylon? Were they around with the master? Did they argue with the master? You know, I remember some big groups. I don't remember reading anything about Karaites. Were there Karaites in the days of the master? Well, I mean, let's debate that. Did they call themselves Karaites? Did they call themselves Jews? Well, 
So we had different sects of Judaism. Was there one there that became Karaites just as the Pharisees became Rabbinic Judaism? No, okay. I would like to do that, since he seems to think that they're top shelf and right there. How did Karite Judaism begin? There, right over there, yes. About the, the calendar, by the way, is about where you're standing. That's right. The calendar's yeah, that's here. The calendar's that's right. That's where Hillel did his thing, right? That's okay. Okay, so the Karites are over here at between 700, 750, 800 before the, uh, uh, of the Common Era. And quickly, what's... What happened to Anand Ben David? He got, he got passed over. He did. He did. He got a little, you know, got in a knot. You know. That's exactly right. He rejected the the reigning authorities' choice of who would be the head of the exile of the Jews. And it was a Muslim that was in charge. And he rejected the guy's choice. And they threw him in jail to kill him, lopping off the head. That's what they do. So how did he get out of the, out of the deal? He got out of the death penalty by claiming that there was a big misunderstanding He wasn't rejecting the choice for head of the Jews. He was a completely different religion. Now, magically, we've turned it into Karite Judaism. So now we're back in the fold, want to be back in the family. That's not how it started. It was a complete rejection of Judaism, not just rabbinic Judaism. Okay. So I'm going to come back to that biblical calendar. Well, just real quick. If, if their sect, which again became a sect of Judaism, after they claim not to be, these guys are now claiming that this calculated calendar here is not biblical and we shouldn't use it. After using it for 400 years. Right. How do you explain the passage with Jonathan and David? David's getting ready to book. Jonathan says, no, 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 you can't leave. You've got to be here tomorrow. You've got to be here tomorrow night. Why? Because tomorrow night's the new moon. Tomorrow night we're having a party because it's the new moon. It's Rosh Kodesh. How could he possibly know that a day in advance? Unless it was already known. Unless to some degree it was calculated. You can't know what day it is. Not for a new moon. You can't see it. But, but even the Talmud says that, I mean, when, there's, there's not that big of a variance. There is more than one day's variance, though. How could he know? Well, there is a way that he, he could know, because at least my understanding is uh, you count off... 29 or 30 days. 29 or 30 days. If you get 30... You see it on the 29th, it, by definition, is the following night. Mm-hmm. So, Whether you see it or not. Exactly. Because you can't go more than 30 days. Technically, that story does include what looks like two nights to rush. Yeah. Which is still, you've you got to wonder 
how a man in that day could say that and not have some kind of calculating going on that did not have to do with observation and whatnot. It's just something to think on. All right. Let's keep going through his newsletter or we'll never finish. Up until 359, the Sanhedrin, actually a court of three appointed by them, would interview new moon witnesses who cited the new moon every month. With the Sanhedrin abolished, Halal II swapped out the visible new moon for conjunction, also called the dark moon. In the 4th century, it was relatively easy to calculate conjunction, but impossible to calculate visibility. So Halal settled for what he could do with the state of technology at the time. However, rabbis ever since have proclaimed that when the Messiah comes and reestablishes the Sanhedrin, they will go back to citing the new moon. This is a speed bump. Exactly. Now, to Jonathan's point, it's, you know, we, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, that, that they want to do it biblically. I mean, that's why we're all sitting here. We want to do it biblically. We want to do what the, what the Lord would have us to do. We want to be obedient. That is the hallmark of our halakha. No question. But I see this as a speed bump. And I do see great value in joining with greater Israel. As Ephesians 2 makes clear that we were afar off, and now we've been brought near, and are part of the commonwealth. If I understand correctly, I, I knew someone who, who practiced this, who actually been in the Hemi Gordon's house, as it turns out, not when he was there, ironically enough. Um, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> Did you change his calendar while you were there? No, <laughs> Flip the page. You know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So the moon issue, his argument is that the new moon his new moon is a sliver you can see, and Judaism's new moon is the is when you can't see nothing, anything. Is that right? Not necessarily. More or less. Well, prior to three fifty nine, Judaism's new moon was the first sighting, the first sliver of sighting. What he's saying is that's the biblical way to do it. They got away from it when when Hillel did the calculated calendar, and he's saying. I'm sticking to the way it's supposed to be done. That's, 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 that's it exactly. So the question becomes, how can we have unity if you live on the other side of town and you live in a different town, right? How, how can we have unity? And 
it appears that this whole sighting thing needs to be in Israel to begin with. So what do we do? We can't cite it anyway, so there needs to be some means of communicating that and well, national as unity. As far as the way that, I mean, I'm just, I don't know exactly all the history behind it, but I'm just thinking about, biblically speaking, the Bible always starts, there's evening and there was morning. I mean, it seems almost to make sense to me to start, you know, at the least amount of light that you're going to see heading into the new one. Because that's like, that is like a reset based on but, but don't be confused to think that Hallel's calendar does not do that. No, I'm saying that that's, that's what he's saying it does do. He's saying that it, they moved it. It used to be, you see the sliver, that's the new moon. Now, he's, now that it's... Well, no, see, that's my point. He's not saying that because that's not what Hallel's thing does. Sometimes it does turn out that way. Right. But more often than not, there is a sliver. It's just not always there. That's all. All right. It's interesting he mentions Messiah. He says that Hillel settled like it's not as good. And yet we know that it is not. We can now go back mathematically and see, as Greg said in the beginning, it is extraordinarily accurate, surprisingly so. Well, you know, every time I, I deal with Nehemiah Gordon... I always think of the book of Judges where we get that closing line all the time that says every man did what was right in his own eyes, which is exactly what I did before I got saved. You know, I mean, the bottom line is I'm part of a people. We talked this past Shabbat on what a, what a marvelous thing it is that we have community. There's unity in the community. And you lose that if every guy's doing his own deal. This is the next paragraph. Today, most Jews observe the calendar of Hillel II based on conjunction, while many Karite Jews continue the pre-Hillel system of citing the new moon. <clears throat> based on Hillel II's calculation, Passover would be Monday night, March 25th, which is exactly when our community celebrated it. But based on the actual visible new moon, it should really be Wednesday night, March 27th. That's his understanding. <clears throat> if Hillel II could travel in time to the 21st century, he would be doing his Passover Seder on Monday night. If King David hopped in his TARDIS, everybody know what that is? Yeah, it's a time machine. Time and relativity dimensions in space. Um, time machine, he would be observing it, Dr. Who, in case you're, yeah, British. He would be observing it on Wednesday night. I prefer to celebrate according to what King David would do and not Hillel II, even if it means I'm two days off from 99.99% of my Jewish brothers and sisters. What's the problem? I, I think he actually says what the problem is in the very last line. He's two days off from almost everyone. So what's the purpose of the festivals? Convocation. It's a holy convocation. Who's supposed to set the holy convocation? We are. You will proclaim a holy convocation. And when you do that, I will meet with you. It's up to you when you proclaim the holy convocation. You as a people, not you individually. When you as a people decide to meet, I will meet you there. 
When are you as a people going to meet? When I told you to. On this date, and this date, and this date, and so on. We could actually give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he is actually correct. But his last line means, by definition, he's wrong. Let me ask you this. Did the master disagree with some of the decisions and the workings of the temple in his day? Absolutely. Did he still participate in the worship? As did his disciples. You've got example after example where the master could have said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're, we're two days off. Trust me, I'm the guy that put the moon up there. He never did that. He remained under the same authority structure that he expects us to stay under. In fact, what I would say is perhaps one of the greatest forms of irony when it comes to calendar questions. The one time the issue may have, well, arguers could argue, claim that he deviated from the broader calendar was on Passover, but he did it a day early Potentially. before his crucifixion. Yes. Or at least he did a similar Seder, not the exact whole thing. He did like a miniature one um, as a, because he couldn't do the next one. But that was a day before, which doesn't ever fit, I don't think, with the Karaite system because theirs is always going to have to be afterwards. Mm-hmm. They're either going to be a month off or a couple of days, one way or the other, depending on when they started their month. On that particular issue, <clears throat> when... Uh, plausible explanation for that besides the fact that he had to be the lamb right so he was going to be preoccupied <laughs> um, is that there my understanding is that there was a block at the time that the priests could actually do their seder the night Dang before right. because they were going to be busy right up until sundown right. on the day of so there was a halakha that allowed priests to do But the master being a day early, you know, can does have several different explanations that you can work with. Okay, so it should really be on March twenty seventh. By whose by whose authority is he saying that? It's his own authority. He's claiming the right to declare for the nation. And putting in his little Karaite corner here, when you should be celebrating the feast. Exactly. Well, but he, under, he undermines his own argument because while what he is doing is, as I understand it anyway, very, very close to what was practiced prior to. That is not described explicitly in the Torah. So he's it's, saying, on it, one hand, it's I, in what he rejected. I disregard all 
rabbinic tradition and rabbinic writings. <coughs> but the only way you know how to do this is you <laughs> actually look at the mission. There it is. I mean, that's truly. I mean, his whole his whole argument is that way. Does any of this stuff stand with like modern Judaism, not just like the Messianic community because he's a believer in Yeshua, but does it? He's not a believer in Yeshua. Oh, he's not. Oh no, 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 oh, okay. no, not in any way. No. Yeah. So he's. I'm really. And, and there it is. And they're existent. They're, they're even organized. I mean, even even in like, Jerusalem, they have their own part of Zion, their own schools. Yeah. So. It's interesting, I thought. Many. Many, many Karaite Jews continue the pre Hillel system of sighting the new moon, but not all of them. How does that work? Does that mean those Karaites are following rabbinic tradition? Well, I, doesn't that mean that they're not Karaites? Huh. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm an anti-Karaite Karaite. Well, well, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you're not using the pre-Hillel system, how are you by definition a Karaite? Yeah, exactly. So. I thought that was the definition. King David. It just... It, it's it's like dropping the name card, you know. And so you know, well, I'm I'm just I'm just trying to do what King David would do. Okay, ninety nine percent we talked about there. You know that about that ninety nine percent, there's something that just really appears very narcissistic about that. That he's the only one that has it right compared. To yeah. Well, I mean, occupy the calendar. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we know the truth, and the truth will set us free. He is, yes. If that wasn't complicated enough, there is the issue of how to begin the new Hebrew year. Biblically, we're commanded in Deuteronomy 16.1, observe the month of the Aviv. Halal II replaced this with an approximate calculation, which just happened to get the month right this year, even if it's two days off. Thank you, Nehemiah. However, some Christian and Messianic groups will be observing Passover in late April based on the vernal Equinox. I wrote a piece about this last year, which you can read here in message number 523. What are your thoughts? It's almost like an insecure, you know, like, even if it's two days off, you know, kind of way of saying, you know, not a lot of humility. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm shocked about the vernal equinox, too. I mean, the only people using the vernal equinox are the people that are still in the church celebrating Easter. So if you want to have Passover, your Passover Seder, the night before Easter Sunday, well, then, yeah, you have to use the vernal equinox because that's how you calculate Easter. So Christians, maybe. Messianic groups? Messianic, yeah, really. Okay. That to me, that's sad. I, okay. Well, there he is. All right. Uh, this approximate calculation. I mean, he's just he's just dinging on him anywhere he can, right? Yes. That, that, if you just read the first half of that sentence, it 
it's almost a, because it is an approximate calculation. It's amazing what Hillel yeah. did. But then you read the rest of it, and it's like, oh, he just happened to get the month right this year. So. Gosh. Yeah. I want to honor those who are observing Passover. That's right. <laughs> I want to honor those who are observing Passover next month for at least striving for biblical truth. They deserve credit for making an effort and not blindly following what others say. What's he asking us to do? Blindly follow what he says. Even if, in my humble opinion, they are in error. Anyway, if you read the newsletter on the Equinox, which he references up here, we've got another thing that contextualizes it in message number 524. Shane. It's funny that uh, a lot of times religious groups mimic a lot of just normal cultural things. Like, in a sense, you would have uh, the Karaite view saying that it's, you know, on this day, and then there are more rabbinic view saying it's on this day, and then saying that person's wrong because of this, and that person's wrong. That's exactly right. And doesn't that bring shame to the gospel? Well, I know. Now he says he says that you're supposed to be confused. Is he actually arguing that the Easter people are not blindly following what others say? Yeah, you know, I. I can't. Okay, good, good points. Good points. I can't. Uh, I can't help you on what he's thinking. Was it in February or March? February. Okay, so next month... Is March. So, so not blindly following actually refers to the Orthodox people. I think, I think not blindly following is what he wants everybody to do, and if you're not blindly following, which I think in his mind means you're going to figure out the date yourself. You can't use anybody else's method. Now... I don't understand what he expects people in the United States to do other than, because he's got the calendar on his website, well, they, they go, right, they go, they, the, he goes to Israel, he sees it, he posts, yeah, he posts it so that everybody else can know when he says it is. I think it's, I want to be a rabbi. Does he bring a friend along? I don't know. Yeah, there's at least two witnesses. Yeah, well, there's several. He'll have several witnesses. Um, so, uh, the Israeli New Moon Society was an organization that he and a couple other people started. Um, and, yeah, so every month. Okay. And, then, and then at the, the, you know, in the spring, you know, when they're trying to determine the beginning of the year, right, they have several people, and it's grown because people have gotten, Well, you know, to Roger's point, people are getting sucked into this because they don't know any better. So they will actually post, so-and-so saw... The crescent moon at this, you know, elevation, elevation yeah, and, and they were standing over line. here at this longitude right. and latitude. Confirmed by this person who saw, you know, so they will post all of that okay. every month when it happens. Yeah. Yes. It almost seems to me by reading this that he's suggesting that um, the vast majority of Judaism, Christians, and Messianics have been snookered by Hillel the second. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's suggesting that at all. I think he's saying it flat out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Stand by now. Go ahead. <laughs> just just to make sure that I understand, like he's obviously not suggesting that this would work if there was a Sanhedrin. I think he made it clear that when Messiah comes, the Sanhedrin will be re- reconstituted, and then we'll go back to the way it was. He said it at the beginning. 
consciousness. Oh, that's true. I, but I don't think he denies that. That he, he's actually using that to say, what I'm doing is what everybody's going to end up doing anyway. Yeah. But actually, that's not true. What he's doing is doing it on his own in a completely non-authoritative manner. That's completely different from the Sanhedrin doing it, certifying it, and then announcing it for the nation. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that, that was fine, because it just seems like, I, I guess he was assuming that without the Sanhedrin, without a temple system, then there, no other authority can really have authority, in, in a sense, because he's waiting for that. You know, because this obviously wouldn't work if there was a, if there was a temple. You can't just be like, oh, today is my day that I calculate. That's right. Here's my lamb. Of course, of course there were sects that were doing that. Would, would a priest actually... The, the Essenes were doing that. They didn't. They rejected it all and said, oh, this is all completely corrupt. We're out of here. But they had their own calendar. The Sadducees had their own too. They just couldn't use it in the temple because there were too many Pharisees. Anybody else? Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about this is we know from the scripture that the luminaries have been given for, uh, for signs, for seasons. Okay. Um, and I don't, know how many, I don't know how much you guys know, but coming up over the next couple of years, for example, Passover 2014, it's big. We are scheduled to have, uh, I think it's a full uh, lunar eclipse. Four in a row. And it is going to happen on the four blood moons in a row. Pre-calculated, <laughs> intercalculated Passover. That's right. And then, the, and then another one in the fall that happens on Sukkot. Sukkot. The Hillel Sukkot. And then, and then the following Passover, and then the following Sukkot. We got four. It's it's unbelievably coincidental. <laughs> yeah. So, so either so either either Halal the second was really Nostradamus in the sky <laughs> or something and really can see it into the future, or maybe God is actually confirming that the Halal calendar that is the calendar that the nation uses has merit. Amen. I think that God has shown through the first exile that if we do the best we can to keep his commandments as best we can, he is pleased by that and honored, provided we're doing it in unity. (sighs) Okay. I got a breeze through this, guys. Um, if you aren't confused yet, I need to throw in one more complication, and that has to do with the definition of the word Passover. In every language, the meanings of word change over time. A great example in English is the word computer. In the 1910s, the English word computer referred to a person, usually a woman, whose job it was to sit with a pen and paper in a slide rule, computing complex calculations for banks, astronomers, and the military. A hundred years later, a computer refers to an inanimate machine that does everything from taking photographs to running the word processor on which I'm writing this message. In the Torah, Pesach or Passover refers to a sacrifice, and the holiday is called um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, in late Second Temple times, the name Passover took on a new meaning. It was used to refer not only to the sacrifice, but to the holiday that followed the sacrifice. If he said to King David, you're doing Pesach, he would know you're offering a sacrifice. If you said the same thing to a first century CE Jew, he might think you were observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread or maybe offering a sacrifice. He wouldn't know and might have to ask you. If you said to most Jews today, you are doing Pesach, they would immediately know you meant the Feast of Unleavened Bread and not a sacrifice. You know what? That's a true statement, 
and it's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. I just can't believe he put that in there, right? It's just a waste of time. All right, so let's move on. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, so the guys with the British television, good. All right, another long one. Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day holiday. It begins on the 15th of the first Hebrew month and continues until the sunset on the 21st day of the first Hebrew month. This year, that can so- coincides on the biblical calendar with sunset March 27th through sunset April 3rd, if you use his calendar. On the Hillel calendar, observed uh, by most Jews, it starts and ends two days earlier, sunset March 25 through sunset April 1. The Torah says the Passover sacrifice itself was brought at the end of the 14th day of the first Hebrew month, which this year will be late afternoon on March 27th, according to the biblical calendar, but March 25th, according to the Hillel 2 calendar, observed by most Jews. Of course, we don't have a temple today, so according to Deuteronomy 16.5, we can't bring a Passover sacrifice. We can only commemorate it. However, we can still observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, this is completely irrelevant. It's just adding... To the confusion. I'm still waiting for him to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> the confusion comes. Like, in yeah. From the 19th century German Bible scholars headed by Julius Wellhausen, who wanted to se- separate the Passover sacrifice from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I'm not going to read the rest of this paragraph. It's just truly Jews versus Israel. What? That's, I mean, he's just trying to bring confusion rather than clarity, and yet his whole focus at the beginning, he said, was I know it can be confusing, allow me to bring some clarity. It, I just can't waste your time with it. Israel, um, a young lady in Canada who listens to us every Tuesday night, and uh, I'm actually hoping to go up there and do the calendar with them at some point here. Yeah, so the whole Israelite thing. I prefer to stick with what King David did. He was both an Israelite and a Jew, and if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Okay. Shocking. Okay. He was a Hebrew. Okay. Well, the word Jew has changed over time. That's exactly Good job. All right. I know this is a lot to follow. There's an understatement. And it may be confusing to some people who are new to all this, and even some who are old to it. Here's the bottom line. If you want to follow the biblical calendar, then the fe- exactly, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is sunset March 27th through sunset April 3. The Passover would have been brought if there were a temple late in the afternoon on the 27th, but today Jews don't bring the sacrifice outside the temple. They never brought it outside the temple after they were told not to. They do commemorate it by telling over the story of the Exodus. I'll be doing my telling over on March 27th at sunset. Lovely. Where, whether you are keeping the biblical calendar, the Hallel 2 calendar, or some made-up 21st century Christian messianic calendar, I want to wish you a happy and healthy Chag Hamatzot. So at least the Hallel 2nd isn't a made-up calendar. Right, right. It's, it's not in that category. But I, I think... His is a 21st century made-up calendar. But, there it is. Yeah, he's making it up. He can't print it. He's making it up as he goes. Well, sure he is. He's saying, now today is Pesach. I didn't say he was doing it arbitrarily. I'm saying he's making it up. How close do you think he is to what it I think that Hillel is closer only because the master 
relied on the, the body of elders of Israel to make these determinations. And I truly believe that the scripture sure. teaches that. Sure. I, yeah. So. Right. I, I completely agree. I, I think the, my question is, is he arriving at the same point, but just not getting to it in a legitimate way? Uh, I, that's a great question. Uh, you're, you're looking at the specifics now. Right. Um, from what I've read on his stuff, from what I've read in his books, and from what I've read about the multiple witnesses, because... It's not just, hey, we didn't see any barley. It's not just that. There was two or three witnesses, that det- three witnesses in, in, in uh, not people, but things, events, geographical things that had to come together in order for the elders to push a month, to intercalate and call it. It wasn't just arbitrary. Go, oh, I didn't see any. Did you see any barley? I didn't see any barley. No, barley's not a harvest. Let's push. They would not necessarily do that. So I don't know how careful he's being with that stuff. But in, in, his, in essence, he is trying to become a Sanhedrin with, with the folks that he's gathering around him. Noble venture. I just don't see the value of further splintering right. Judaism. And that's my point. Is, is his dates may or may not be correct. That's not the issue I have with him. Exactly it's right. The, the way he's... he's he doesn't have to get into those points. Right. He, he doesn't have the authority. It's just, that's the bottom line. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. So, I, it just bothered me that throughout the biblical calendar is juxtaposed to Hillel's. Okay. We're done with that. So, take a deep breath. Good. Let it out. I am going to now bring you into the world of Aristotle and logic. It's going to be very lightweight. I'm going to give you one thing that you need to know. I'm going to put it up there so you can read it. So I've got to go back to my big fat Greek mindset. That's big fat Greek mindset. That's exactly right. So if you're going to talk in Aristotelian logic, then we should be able to... Yeah! Exactly. Are we allowed to lobby? Lobby? Like if you're wrong. If I'm wrong, I want to know. All I'm going to do is... I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm going to present some definitions and then some premises and some conclusions. I would like to hear your thoughts. You may agree. You may disagree. Remember, I'm probably going to be more conservative than you. Just by definition. For the vast majority of you, it's simply because I'm older than you. For you older men, if you choose to argue it and have some wisdom to bring, bring it on. For you younger men that want to stand up and do a little jousting, let's have at it. Seriously, I think it's, this is an important topic, and I want to do it not lightweight, but slowly. So, Aristotle said that any logical argument can be reduced to two premises and a conclusion. It is a syllogism. But we're trying to keep it lightweight. So, an example. All men are mortal. Tom is a man. Therefore, Tom is mortal. Very simple. It does. It actually works with most men. Some men it may not work with. Well, there's one, for sure. Alright, so, everybody got... It's not going to get any tougher than that. That's it right there. It's as deep as it's going to get. All right. 
if the premises are both true and the argument is logical, then the conclusion must be true. It is not open to discussion. Now, on this we got to be clear. If A is true and B is true, the conclusion must be true if it's a logical argument. So I'm going to try and bring together nothing but two. I'm only going to give you two logical arguments. The first one I think you'll stumble right through with me, no problem. The second one is where we might have a discussion. Let's look at some definitions. A stranger. What's a stranger? According to, the, uh, to my dictionary, a person whom one does not know or with, with whom one is not Familiar. Yes, sir. Oh, no, no. No, no. This is the, dic- no, the dictionary on my computer. Yes, yeah. You can look this up. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. Or in the middle, would someone like George Clooney count? Because you are familiar with him, but you don't know him. Well, that's a great question. I think we're going to find that there's a continuum, right? From stranger to whatever is not a stranger. So let's see if we can determine what the next step might be. Perhaps it would be an acquaintance, a person one knows slightly but who is not a close friend. So so we move from stranger to acquaintance. I don't know that I would put George Clooney in the acquaintance category. Okay, so that we know about him. We know of his movies. We know of him. Okay, good. Joe. You met George. You met George Clooney. Hey, man. Did you really? He's trying to get a grab on that. That's good. That's good. That's good. Wow. Did you meet Gwyneth Paltrow? Uh, okay. Next, a friend, a person whom one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection. Are we okay on these? I got them right off the net. Regular definition, you know, definition.com or something like that. I mean, this was consistent across two or three dictionaries that I looked at. A friend. So I got a stranger. You don't know him. An acquaintance. I know him slightly, but we're not. He's not a friend. And a friend. You know him, and you have a bond. There's a bond there. I would count, eh, some of you are a little shaky, but I would count everyone in this room as a friend because we do have a bond, don't we? What is that bond? Messiah Yeshua is that bond. We have another bond. What is that? The Torah and Torah observance and our desire to be obedient to it. We have another bond. And guns for most of us, yes. No, Israel is the one. The people of God, yes. The land, the scriptures, and the God of Israel, right? And then what's the next one? The schedule. We all are here on Tuesday night. You're here in my house. Did we mention wine? We didn't mention wine. Handguns and wine. And this is getting good. Wine and handguns, but not the same time. So, that's right. You just got to get the order correct. I can see a continuum forming. I think there's one more on this continuum. What would that be? Ah, the spouse. A person in a marriage relationship bound by civil and or religious laws. These are the terms 
we'll be using in our two syllogisms. Everybody agree? All right. So perhaps you would agree that we have a relationship continuum which begins with stranger, moves through acquaintance, and lands on friend. And then, as Taylor knows, one will become spouse. God willing and by his grace. Not all friends are to penance for spouses. They for instance. And this will bring us, actually... To our second syllogism, we've got to get the first one out of the way first. So, Seth Godin. How many of you read Seth Godin on the web? A little marketing guy there. He's a funny-looking dude. He's got no hair. <laughs> this is the difference. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. Here's the difference, according to Seth Godin, between strangers and friends. Strangers are justifiably suspicious. Friends give you the benefit of the doubt. Friend is more broadly defined as someone you would have a beer with or meet up with to go on a hike. A friend is someone who has interacted with you or who knows your parents or reads your blog. Someone with history. If you've made a promise to someone and then kept it, you're a friend. If you change someone for the better, you're a friend as well. We market to friends very differently than we market to strangers. We do business differently as well. Thanks to social networks and the amplification of stories online, which is called lying, we have far more friends per person yeah, than at any other time in human history. I think that's, that's a true statement. Nurturing your friends, protecting them, and watching out for them is an obligation, and it builds an asset at the same time. I believe that. I want and desire to invest time and effort into each one of you as friends. I am concerned about your walk in Messiah, and I want to help, and I want to be there, because I want to demonstrate that I am your friend. I want to distinguish friends from friendlies, the people you have a digital link to but no real connection, like George Clooney. Friendlies are basically strangers with a thumbnail on their face of their face on your screen. They're not friends. And while we're at it, the moment you treat a friend like a stranger, form male, for example, they're not a friend anymore, are they? He is. Are we adding a fourth? Friendlies? Yes. No, I'm skipping friendlies. Skipping friendlies. All right, so that's Seth Godin's perspective. Everybody agree? It's pretty, pretty good, pretty good. All right, let's take a look at that relationship continuum again. Then with his perspective in there, we see that the stranger we've never met, the acquaintance we've met before at some point, at least once, the friend we're bonded to, and the spouse we're intimate with. This, I believe, puts all four of these categories in unique and exclusive sections. There's no overlap. You can't be in both. You may move. Sometimes you move the other way. But you're going to move or stay in one category at a time. You can't be in two. Okay? I got eyebrows. Eyebrows are knit. We okay? Okay. Only your spouse could be a friend. But they're, they're a spouse. I get your point. Thank you. Tim, we Okay. Okay. I was I was I was just thinking I could have bonded with someone for a universal cause I've never met before. 
Yeah. How would you bond with them? This doesn't necessarily mean physical. Correct. Correct. You, I mean, you don't have to necessarily like fellow, physically be with them. Like a fellow Jew, for example. You know, I mean, like, like you, you are bound with have the same faith, worship the same God. I still wouldn't call him a friend at that point. I would still, based on what we're talking about, we're not bonded yet. We have a lot in common. I'd still call him an acquaintance, like Rabbi Cohen, right? I love the guy to death, but I still would call him an acquaintance, not a friend, even though I try to go out of my way to help the guy. Right? It doesn't matter if you have common ground. Agree. Exactly. Then, then we're at least an acquaintance, and then maybe we'll bond. So John just moved from stranger to acquaintance in our story. When he introduced himself to me, he said, hey, my name's John. Do you like this kind of music? I was like, no. But then... <laughs> so John moved over to the next guy. <laughs> Basically, he was trying to sell me something, and I didn't really care for it. But then he told me he was from Atlanta and started telling me the story, and I was like, I bought whatever he had. I forgot what it was. I, I, like it. I put it in my bike. But it was from, because he was from Atlanta... And who is an entrepreneur? Okay. And we shared a mutual bond. I'm still not considering him a friend. Exactly. Exactly. He's yeah, I'm not. He you, you've got a good point there. I'm not saying there's mutual bonds here. The I'm saying they're bonded. The fact that there's exactly. So the fact that you've got some stuff in common doesn't necessarily mean friendship. I've got a lot in common with a lot of people that are not my friends. I also have very little in common with many of you. Just from a lifestyle perspective, age, children, house, job. I, I, I mean, Tim, how much do we got in common? I mean, you're handsome, I'm handsome. What else we got? <laughs> right? What else we got, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right, we both have pants, yeah. All right, so let's take our first premise. Our first premise. Marriage is a unique Relationship. Would you agree with that premise? Unique relationship. So no bigamy, polygamy, all that kind of It's unique. Absolutely defined as unique. One unique wife for life. God willing, by his grace. And if your marriage fails, whose fault is it? It's your fault. It's your fault. Did you say my husband? No, I said it's the husband. The husband. Thank you. I was concerned about him for a second. <laughs> I'm thinking this acquaintance thing needs to move back a little bit, you know? Yeah. So two of the things that are absolutely unique or cause this relationship to be unique, of course, are intimacy. You know, we talked last week about divorce and remarriage, and it took us a little bit, I think, for our heads to get wrapped around the fact that fooling around is not an option. In our culture, it's acceptable. In a biblical culture, in a Torah community, it is unacceptable, and it's penalty of death. You don't do that. So we can assume, based on biblical culture, for example, that the virgin who will bear the child, when the word is not the normal word for virgin, but rather an unmarried young woman, is, in fact, by definition, a virgin, because of the culture. That's different than the culture we live in today. So, intimacy, unique to this relationship, and one flesh, as God described. Okay? So we're good on premise one. Everybody agrees with premise one. Okay. 
Well, premise two, man must show honor for his wife. I've got a couple of scriptures here I'll read to you. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's not only a command, but it's wise to do so. Honor your wife. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 5. Therefore a man shall leave or cleave, if you're in the, in the King James, his father and his mother, and hold fast or cleave again to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed, because they had a unique relationship. And then Genesis chapter 20, verses 3 and 7. You know this story. God came to Avimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Why is that a big deal? Because that's a unique relationship with one man, and that's the wrong man. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live but. If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And even then, I mean, Amalek was not a Hebrew, but he understood the significance behind the relationship because he goes to everybody. He's like, bro. What have you done? Well, he even says to God, well, I didn't touch her. I didn't no, touch her. I didn't, no, he, knew, he understood it, the significance. He sure did. He sure did. Sense. You bet. You bet. So that's premise two. I could have given you. 30 or 40 more scriptures. But I thought this one would be a slam dunk. Would you agree that a man must show honor for his wife? How many of you agree with that? You all agree with that? Okay. All right. Well, the conclusion then, if marriage is a unique relationship and a man must show honor for his wife, therefore, the man's relationship with his wife must be unique and non-threatened. If she's not honored, then it, it, it would be, I would say, a threat. So, maybe the verbiage a little bit, but that's, that's my first argument. The man's relationship with his wife must be unique and non-threatened. Because if there are other people in the relationship, it is therefore not unique. And this, we already know, is a threat to her. As we see from Sarah and Hagar, as we see... Later on, I can, and I can give you scriptures. You know this to be true. Why do you know this to be true? Because the first two are true. By definition. Can we move on? I think I only have like two slides left. I've got my premise one and my premise two. Then the conclusion. We ready? Premise number one. Men have friends. How many of you agree with that? Men have friends. It's really a non-threatening type thing, isn't it? Sure, men have friends. All right, so um, we're going to go through these verses here in a nanosecond because I'm not going to ask you to look them up. I'll, I'm going to ha- I'll have the handout on the, um, uh, on the Men of Torah site. Uh, I'm going to read them for those who are listening uh, in Canada, eh? Uh, Genesis 38, 12 and 20, talking about Judah and Hira. What's that all about? Somebody help me. He took his friend, right. right? They went up. It's the shearing time. This is where Tamar gets involved. But he went up with his friend, Hirah. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 13. We've got two Hebrews. What's going on in Exodus 2? Come on. Beginning of the story. They're fighting. Who's fighting? The two Hebrews. Who breaks up the fight? 
Moses. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 27, the priests. You remember that one? If you don't remember it, we've got to look it up. All right. Taylor, would you look that one up? We'll uh, move on. Exodus 33 and verse 11. Moses and Hashem. I speak to Moses as I speak to a friend. Deuteronomy 13.6 As your own soul. That one's probably too obscure for you guys. One of you guys in the cheap seats over here, look up. Deuteronomy 13.6 We got the... Um, Exodus 32:27. Yes, not sure. Yeah, well, maybe it's the wrong verse. Read it anyway. What does it say? Uh, and he said to them, "Thus says Adonai, God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and kill each of you his brother and his company and his neighbor." Yeah, the word "company" there is actually his companion. Yeah, that's friend. All right. So here, the priests are actually going through and killing their friends. Yeah. You may have a bond, which could be the fact that you're fighting each other in that moment. Well, you know, it was, uh, I think, the Lord is trying to say, I want you to kill indiscriminately. I want you to go in and hack. Because these guys have sinned. That's exactly right. It's a golden calf. So I want you to go in there and kill indiscriminately. And notice that the Lord actually gives three different categories. Which is the That's right. So, I mean, somebody have it? Deuteronomy 13.6? Let's hear it, Brock. Okay. <clears throat> if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or wife, embrace, or your friend, who is your, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve the gods, which neither you or your fathers have known, some gods, and people who are around you. Take him out. Take him out, exactly. So, here we have a, a description of a man's friend who is as his own soul. They're soulmates, close friends. You know, Gideon, Judges chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, right? You know, Gideon used to go and knock down the Asher trees. No, it's not the Asher tree one. I think it was just like a friend of his who was interpreting a dream or talking about Exactly right, yeah. And it, and it mentions that he's got this, he's got this friend, yeah. Good for you. First Samuel 30, verse 26, David. Yeah, yeah, well, that's not the David and Jonathan one, but David has friends, oh, yeah. Um, is that what? Is that his armor bearer? Um, I think it is, yeah. He's got the uh, counselor and then his close friend. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, 2 Samuel 13.3, Amnon has a good friend whose name is Yonadav. 1 Kings 16.11, uh, Zimri becomes king and wipes out Baasha, and all of his friends. First Chronicles 27:33, David and Hushai, and that might be the one I was thinking about over there. Um, that, that is the one I was thinking about over there, so that must be the three friends there, yeah. Um, and of course, Job 2:11. Job's got three friends. They get a bad rap all the time. I think they sound like us, though. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Psalm 88, almost the entire psalm is talking about friends, and how this man's friends, this is evidently according to the non-inspired title, Heman the Ezraite. His friends are forsaking him, his friends are turning their back on him, and all he's got some bad friends, but friends nonetheless. Um, Proverbs 17, 17, a friend, lasts 
all the time. Song of Songs 5.16, the beloved is called his friend. So back to your point that the wife, the spouse, can actually be a friend, no question. Zechariah 3.8, Joshua, the high priest, and the people in front of him are his friends. So Song of Songs 5.16 is troublesome to me. We've already determined that people are only in a single category. So I understand that the spouse is a spouse, or the spouse, but how can she be a friend? I have an answer for that, and I'll bet that your perspective, if you disagree with mine, does not answer that. So premise one, men have friends. We see that this is a biblical construct. It's not just a cultural one. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I didn't put anything in here. You notice I gave you the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. I did. I mean, it's just such a slam dunk. Everybody's got that. Um, but I left out the apostolic writings because there are too many. I mean, the Lord uses friend constantly. All right, premise number two. A man's friends may draw near. I mean, what is it that makes him a friend? There's, there's a bond, right? Who's the guy you call when you fall off your motorcycle? Who's the guy you call in the middle of the night when you, you know, you can't drive home? How do you distinguish between an acquaintance and a friend? What's the difference? Um, well, for me, um, I would define that as, well, to me, friendship is a very special relationship. It's not something extremely abstract. I wouldn't call just anybody my friends. For instance, um, there's a friend of mine named David, and uh, when he was going through a rough breakup, a lot of people who were also friends of the person who broke up with him mm. kind of... Yeah, sort of a sticky wicket there. Yeah, they, they ditched him pretty much and kind of besmirched his good name for mm-hmm. a lot of people. It was mm-hmm. a very dramatic thing, but... You were there for him. I was there for him. That's and why you're his friend. Yeah, and now me and him are extremely good friends. We're, we're before, but now we're better. My dad told me when I was a boy that I would have one, maybe two friends my entire life. But many, many acquaintances. I don't know if he was right or not. Especially if I count you guys as friends. Would you lend money to an acquaintance without thinking about it? Would you lend money to a friend without thinking about it? Would you get up in the middle of the night and help a guy with his marriage? If he was your friend? If somebody called you and you didn't, you, you had heard of them, but you didn't really know it, would you? I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Probably, but it'd be for a different reason. Exactly. So, how do you distinguish between an acquaintance and a friend? Who can, who can answer that for me? How, what, what is it that makes you do the difference? Part of that, though, is all of it, but part of it is um, a sense of a mutual affection, not just a bond. Yes. 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 The idea that I emotionally care about this person. Yes. And, and you'll invest. And I invest, and they emotionally care about me and invest in return. So when the call comes in the middle of the night, if it's a friend at the other end, you take the call and you react because you're invested. I think it's just a difference of scope. Like for a friend, I'm willing to do this much and go this far with an acquaintance. Good, good. Yes, sir. I think one of the helpful things that we have been talking about is 
what a f the difference of what a friend does as opposed to what an acquaintance does. I think. Or doesn't do. Even though we started off with, we're going to be a little bit in the Greek mindset, mm -hmm. a lot of times in the West we say, but this is who a friend is, and we kind of put it in this ethereal right, right, realm, right. Yes, yes. and it doesn't really touch your life. But I think one of the benefits of the way we're talking about it is, here's how you act if you're a friend. Exactly right, too. Exactly right. Yeah. The only reason I had to start with, I, I, with the Greek yeah. thing was just to get the, you know, the, you know, the logical argument. It's excellent, but it really is action, right? It's what you do, and it's what they do, right? That makes them a friend and makes them call you friend. Brock, I got you. It's friendship is a relationship, and like one of the bigger relationships you have with your marriage, um, marriage requires commitment. Being a friend requires being committed. Mm -hmm. so Good. Kind of what Taylor was saying. And, and the commitment is measured in the action. Right, exactly. There it is. That's exactly that's what I was about to say. Good, good, excellent. The underlying friendship. There it is. All right. So describe some actions friends do that would be inappropriate or awkward if an acquaintance or, a, or even a stranger would do it. What, what would, what, name some. Yeah, hugging an acquaintance is, uh, is, 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 is awkward. Hugging a stranger is even worse, you know. Yeah. What else? Hugging. I'm oh, sorry? Sleepover. Okay, come sleep in the house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Okay. Tackle football. Yeah. Okay. 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 What else? Anything else? It's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, even lending them a gun. Yeah. Right? Okay. So our first two premises. Yes, sir. This is way too much information, and we're not even friends yet. Yeah, exactly. Good. I'm here all the time at work. I don't care what happened to you last week. Why are you in front of me? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know what it is. When we're in this walk, people feel very comfortable speaking with us. That's an integrity issue. Okay. My point in this is that if you have granted access, if you're allowing people to draw near through texts, emails, phone calls, drop-in visits, tweets, I don't know what that is, but it makes that little whistle sound on Pete's phone, you know, um, Facebook messages, whatever it is, if you've allowed a person to get into that category... And your wife is in this unique category beyond that, yet she's also a friend. I submit that you are causing yourself a problem. Men have friends. A man's friends may draw near. Therefore, a man's friends may not be female. Because if they are, think about the timeline of your 
marriage. I'm going to give a quick example. Let me pick a married guy. Okay, Greg. Greg's been married a quarter of a century. How do you think Gabby would feel if they were in the middle of dinner and some chick called up on his cell phone, his private personal cell phone, and he took the call and said, I'm sorry, we're eating dinner right now. Um, oh, no, 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 yeah, we can, we can talk. Yeah, yeah, and he just gets up and walks out onto the porch and chats with her for a half an hour. Who was that? Oh, just a friend. That just doesn't seem right, does it? Doesn't it seem awkward? If it would be inappropriate at the 25, 27-year mark, would it be inappropriate a year into the marriage? Yes. Would it be inappropriate the day after you got married on your honeymoon night? Sweetie, who was that? Just a friend. How many just a Yeah. How about during the wedding? How about, how about, how about the night before? Now, do you see how I can go back in time? There is no biblical line that you can draw for me as to when you should eject the women from the friend category. There's no way that you can tell me when to do that because friends don't do that. I want to be my friend, but only until the 27th of March. (laughs) What is that? That won't work. That's not what friendship's built on. So, so can there be a time? I submit to you gentlemen, there cannot be a time. It's not possible. Because either you have to damage a relationship that you chose to start, or you will damage one that you want to start. You may disagree, especially if you're young. But I can't tell you how many times I have seen in my own walk, if I can't tell where God drew the line, it's because I stepped over it a while ago. And I need to back up. This happened to me. Um, because I think that the Bible and my experience demonstrates that young men are not as wise as older men. That has nothing to do with all of the younger men in here. But, good question. Comments? Yes, sir. Um, Got you. And you. I agree. And you. Thank you. Don't you wish that we taught our children this? It would have been very helpful, and it makes not, you know, makes it a whole lot less awkward when you get a Facebook message. Now I really shouldn't respond because that would be kind of inappropriate. Right, and how can you really respond? And it, so now you got to break your relationship so that you preserve and honor right. your wife. My question is on the acquaintance level. Yeah. I'm thinking biblically here mm-hmm. because I, part of what I, part of my understanding and why I came to this conclusion of not having. Friends, is you don't see male female friends in the Bible, 
Not only that, but if, we're, if we look, unlike Nehemiah Gordon does, if we look down through the passages of time, the Orthodox community doesn't do this. Just like they don't have sex outside of wedlock, they don't have boy-girlfriend things going on. They're cousins. With Yeshua. There is a, there's a, when, when Lazarus dies, you know, Martha okay. shows up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss the Yeshua card and say, you, you can't use him. Okay, take him out. Um, Paul, Paul, Paul. He married her. <laughs> but she wasn't, oh, I'm coming back to you. He wasn't a friend to her. He was impressed. And then he took her as his wife. But there, I, don't, I would say there was no friendship. She honored him as the king. She, he took her as his wife. Okay. I'm saying is Paul repeatedly sends salutations to female characters whom he apparently knows well enough to know their character, at least to some degree. Um, and I think that any elder of a flock should. Still, he I, I wouldn't call him a friend. John, second John is written to a woman mm-hmm. um, by a man. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see... Now, I'm, I'm not hearing friends here. No, 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 because no. Actually, I'm I, not saying they are. I'm, well, I'm, asking, I'm asking what are they? Well, I, w- I would call them acquaintances because I can't call them friends. And here's an example. The lady that sent me the previous class that we just did, I am going to email her and tell her we just did a class on it. I thought the men would have a good perspective. Here you go. I'm going to copy my wife when I send that email to her. Right. I may actually copy her husband if I can figure out who he is because sometimes I get confused because they're in Canada. But, I mean, she's not a friend. She's an acquaintance. I would love to have a stronger friendship with her husband. No, my question is, I guess my question is, because I'm all about practical. Practical here needs to be important and established. What's the practical difference between an acquaintance and a friend when you're talking about that? Because that continuum... You've locked off as being very black and white. Yes, it is. But I'm, my Orthodox question, Judaism has no problem with it, nor do I. Really, really good acquaintance. <laughs> 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 like, I, I look at like Deborah Barak, for example. They have something of a one-on-one relationship to a degree in public, but they're still interacting together. I, I'm not. I am not saying that men and women cannot interact. You, you, you're using, you're using interaction a whole lot. I don't care about interaction. Version of Judaism where men don't even speak to women. And, they, but, well, and, and they'll, they'll you know, block their face as they walk by. Uh, all I'm, I'm not the expert. All I'm saying is, in that friends category, I don't think women should be in there. I think for you, you you're already done. For the single guys, if they've got women in that friend category, my counsel would be get them out of there now before. You have a problem. I, I guess my, my question is when I'm talking about the practical stuff. For example, I mean, you, you mentioned the email is a good one. Yes. Um, I will always copy my wife. Copy your wife. Or the husband, um, or you both. Know, you're not going to have extensive conversations one-on-one, whether that's in person, whether that's electronic, by phone, whatever it might be. You just don't do that. That's right. You don't go to a meal one-on-one with a female. Right. You 
You don't go to coffee one-on-one. You really, the whole one-on-one thing is out the window when you meet. And as you know from years ago, when this class started, one of the first classes we did was talking about the elevator. I will not get in an elevator alone with a woman. If the door opens up and there's, an, and there's a woman alone on the elevator and I'm getting ready to go in, I'll make some excuse. Regardless I will. of the age. That's right. Well, that You've got to watch those 85-year-old women. Some of them are, you know. <laughs> uh, hang on one second, sir. I, I, I got nine guys here. Good points. Mine is actually dovetailing from that. So okay, so we don't want to hear from you. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, really. And I'm pretty sure I know how you would answer this. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I agree with your both your premises and conclusion. Therefore, I've tried to answer it in my own mind. How does that work out with in, in our community yes. interacting with yeah. uh, men and women? I, I understand that it's we're always pretty much going to be in public, so that pretty much takes care of the one-on-one angle. Let's let's rephrase that to make sure there's absolutely no confusion, because he's right. We need to get down the specifics. Right. There will always be in public. Indeed. Not almost always. It will always be in public. But one-on-one still happens in public. I don't have any problem with one-on-one. No, 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 but I'm talking in about public. inappropriate one-on-one still happens right. in public. Because, like, I would, for example, I would say, I mean, you know, let's put it this way. This is maybe the best example I can think of of what you should not do with a woman. If you've ever watched a TV show or a movie, you can pick out almost immediately when this guy and this girl are going to have a thing. Because... They have, they have spent time alone together in some form. It could be in the middle of a whole group, but they, they gravitate to each other. They share deep secrets, or they commiserate or support one another. They try, end up, you know, maybe they accidentally bump each other, yeah. whatever it might be. And this, this whole personal conversation, personal space stuff right. is absolutely so forbidden if you, if you in my book. Yourself, I mean, I'll be honest with you. If, I, you know, if you find yourself in a conversation with a female that lasts more than five or ten minutes might be time to pull somebody else in or leave. Well, I I want to go beyond that. I think that's great, Joshua. But if I see you in a conversation like that, I'm your friend. I'm going to come up and stand next to you and just insert myself into the conversation. Not because I'm nosy, but because I want to help. Hang on, let him finish. That's what I was going to ask. When we're in these, uh, the community, because you should not be meeting with any female ever outside of the public sphere, let alone anyone within the community, one-on-one. So if that happens where you're kind of alone in the middle of a crowded room and you see two people like that, is it appropriate to just walk over there and join it? Absolutely. I don't think it's not... Uh, it's, I don't think... I not only think it's appropriate, I think it's our... It should be an expectation, and I want you to help me with that. If we got a woman in our community who just wants to gab and get it going and and talk and pour out her heart and stuff like that, that's all well and good. And if she wants to do it to me because I happen to be the closest guy or I'm the mouth, fine. She can start with me, but i got to get unhooked from that as quick as I can. And I am going to be scanning, looking for my wife so she can step in. And if I don't see my wife, I'm going to look for your wife. So I can say, Lori, can you, yeah, uh, I'm going to be, uh, you know, that whole tongue tie thing works great because it's really what you want to say is, uh, yeah, and, and it should work. So that's a great practical example. Yours too. Yeah. Hang on one sec. Uh, you. Yes. Then you. So 
say. But you're both 20 now. Yeah, we're 20 both 20 now, so it's my club right here. But um, I agree with your premise and your conclusion. Premises. Premises and conclusion. Good. Um, I'm surprised, actually, gentlemen. I'm really surprised. I personally experienced that, um, and it kind of comes to my point. Um, when I first started to get to know Jennings, it was, you know, I was all in from, from the moment it, it began. So it was sort of what Jonathan was saying, but I'm not sure if Dave and Abigail is a good example of this, but David was impressed with Abigail, so he's like, okay, I want to get to sort of, I want to get to know this girl, and then she became his wife. So that's what happened to me. I want to get to know Jenny. She was going to become my wife. But I had to jettison any female friends that I had in that process mm-hmm. because we, this is true. You can't have So, So are you going to raise your sons to not have female friends or, or females in that friend category? Absolutely. Or are you going to counsel them that they got to pick some arbitrary date and hope that it's soon enough so that and damage relationships right. in order to, see what I mean? Yeah, which is what I was going to say, which is, you know, I feel bad about that because I, that's what I had to do. I had to jettison the Oh, it's crummy. I know. You know I, yeah, I had to write a whole letter. It was unbelievable. You know, I, I mean, I, this was the very beginning where I was going to say that, I, you know, I uh, agree with, with, with what you said. Um, I, too, you know, just had, you know, before autumn, you know, even even while I was friends with Autumn, I like Josh was saying, I was friends with you know several. Sure. Uh, What's well, the norm? It's the norm in our culture. And it's crazy because um, I don't know. I don't know if it just this is just something with you know females in general, women in general, or, or the specific friends that I had. But it seems like he's speaking completely for himself when he speaks of all women in general. <laughs> <laughs> You know when you when I when I ha- when you had to go and, and do what you know what he was saying yeah. and end them. Yeah. It's it's crazy how I mean this was before like getting really serious with Autumn or whatever. Just yeah. you you know you felt like this isn't right. It's something's know, wrong. Struggling and and yeah and they, they get angry and you will start hearing things from them like oh wow like what they where they they saw the relationship oh, no, going so somewhere. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And Completely it's, inappropriate. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Good. So, yes. I got you. I'm starting to wonder if the acquaintance category might be split down the middle if it's a female continuum because the things that we just mentioned practically, like not sitting down one-on-one with a woman yes. for coffee or something like that, yes. I, I wouldn't call that a friend interaction. That's definitely an acquaintance interaction. You have like just casual coffees with people you're acquainted with, not necessarily friends. Those are I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. So and, and aren't you hoping in some cases that the acquaintance relationship will blossom into a, a strong friendship? I mean, isn't that the whole idea? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Is to find those men with whom we can have a strong bond, sure. perhaps bring them to Messiah, be encouraged by their walk, encourage them? Yeah. But I, and, and so I guess my question is, because there are already situations in the acquaintance category that would be inappropriate if it were a female, especially, and I, and I totally agree with the conclusion, almost like the orthodox position, throwing out the acquaintance category altogether, or is yeah. that still no. going to be... I don't think so. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's where the wisdom comes in, and I think that's what this is all about, is that you need to know how to respond. You need to know how to deftly and with, with uh, proper bearing 
tell a woman, no, I can't go have coffee with you. It's completely inappropriate. Are you nuts? But you can't say it like that. You have to, you have to wisely teach them what's, tactfully right, what's appropriate. And they don't normally know. And do, by the way, do you guys know why so many people, not just women, but women specifically, are more than willing to spend time speaking with you and talking with you? Why they, they are naturally going to become your friends? Because you're moral men. You're non-threatening. By definition, you're not going to try and get in their pants. We can only hope. And hopefully, they sense that. Yes, I am happily married. Even if I were unhappily married. (laughs) Married. And they know that. They sense that if you're walking the halakha that we're describing. Hang on one sec. I got, uh, before we do multiples. Yes, yes, please. He's he's, he's closer than anybody here. Spouse get up into the friend category. If, they, if there can never be a female friend, then there can never be a spouse. Right into that continuum. Where it is. But, but the, that's not true because you can't be you can't befriend someone you've never met if, if it's an arranged. No, 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 no. That's you're assuming that an arranged marriage means that you can't see them. Okay. Well. But I I I think we need a different. That is that's a, I think that's a. Yeah, I know. I think that's a different class. But the question is. How can I befriend my wife before she's my wife? And I think biblically, that's what betrothal is all about. Not uh, courting. I'll say mine for last. I think that he was actually way ahead of me. So, I had a question. You're on a double. He's on first. Okay. Second base. (laughs) No. Amen. Uh, like, I don't hug women. You know, in this culture, particularly in the South, and even many of the women in our community, they see you, they run up, and they just, you know, the bear hug, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't require, you know, whatever, right? I mean, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to initiate that kind right. of interaction. Yeah. I mean, in fact, even with your daughter and your wife. To this very day, she sees me. She's like, "Oh yeah." And yeah. But the point is, we have to be willing to endure those awkward moments. Absolutely. You know, where the culture might be running up and just giving the big hug. We need to teach, and and we kind of stand back. And sometimes that's we even run the risk of being interpreted as being kind of standoff, cold, and all that. Sure. Yeah. But the reality is, I'm protecting her honor. You bet. And, and more importantly, I'm protecting his. You bet. So you're, you're doing three. You're protecting her honor. You're guarding your wife's and the master's. It's, it's the left shoulder drop. <laughs> we have a guy in our community who's excellent at it. He just drops that left shoulder back and makes it abundantly clear physically that he's not stepping in left to get the hug. 
nor would it be appropriate for her to reach out with the right. So, you know, it's, hi, and drop back, and it, it works. You watch, next Shabbat we're together, you'll see the man who does it. Very cool. Very cool. Yes, that's right. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, it's good to see you. Another comment here? Another comment. Did I have something? Yes, sir. Yeah. I, I, the verse that comes to mind is the joy set before him and through the cross. Mm-hmm. It's like the only thing that, that gave me encouragement to sever a lot of those relationships, you know, probably like a year or so ago, maybe even two. But it was, you just anticipated the joy that was going to set before you when you, you did finally find a friend yep. or someone that was there. And it helped you endure that awkwardness, the coldness. And then it's interesting how God kind of reconciles all of that. And I think it was, it was in one of our prayers, like, may, may your name not be shamed. Right. And it's interesting how it usually doesn't end up bad. You usually never even see that person ever again, never talk to them again. Then you kind of supernaturally never really cross paths again. Um, Which is a blessing. Such a blessing. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, gentlemen, that uh, if in a community setting, you're able to, from afar, watch the character and godliness of a young woman. And instead of approaching her looking for a friendship, you approach her father and say, I have noticed godly character and an incredible, mighty spirit that I would like to have as a bride. Several things are going to happen. The dad is either going to hit you in the face or embrace you. You will have honored the man's daughter simply by making the statement. And God's going to pour out all kinds of grace, even if it doesn't end up happening, between you and that family. It's just a cool deal. And you will earn a tremendous friend in both the father and, God willing and by his grace, to the daughter. Yes, sir? So to kind of bring us full circle, are you saying that since we're contrary to 99.99% of the category? To the culture that we're their rights. Very, very clever. Very clever. I think we will always find that we are outside of the norm. And uh, fortunately, we, will, we are joining in our halakha with the vast majority of Orthodox Judaism and all of its various subsects. And, and, it, and it's that way in the church. So, but here, I have I know more guys that I would count as my friends, and I have more men that I have deeper with than probably any other time in my lifetime combined. Amen. And that's and and, that's, and, and think about raising your children right. in this community, and they're going to be raised with that mindset that I can always go to Mister Upham. He's a, he's a member of the community. He's he walks the same way we walk. Oh yeah. Because I mean, I I I, have, I speak unfairly because 
I had the advantage of being able to be more friendly with my wife before I realized maybe some things I wouldn't do now. Um, Even though I think you had one of the highest standards that... I'm not uh, talking about the courtship. I'm speaking about the pre-courtship stage. You know, you, yeah. I was a guy who was used to making yeah. girls friends with girls. Yeah. So that was maybe a disadvantage that people might not have in that respect. But at the same time, um, when you're in a community around women who are godly, you get together in group settings naturally then the opportunity to observe, interact, watch. I think one of the, I mean, I, I'm going to pick on one of my good friends here and lift him up in the highest regard. I was so you made the friend category, buddy. Good job. I'm, I'm thinking particularly, um, well, many of you, but I'm thinking particularly in this case of Colby, because when he sat down... You, the made, the, you made the friend category. <laughs> we, you're an acquaintance. <laughs> I think I'm probably because when, when Colby first started his relationship with Michaela, he spoke with my wife and I to let us know what's going on, and I was amazed why he started it. He didn't, I mean, I kept waiting for the, we just were like hanging out and just started talking and like an hour later we realized, wow, we have so much in common. And that never happened. In fact, they, they had a conversation across the room from each other, you know, a couple mornings that lasted 10 minutes and that was the extent of their like discussion. But what he talked about was, and I watched the way she honored her father, I watched like the passion she had there for it is. God, there it I is. the service she had for the community, and it's like, wow, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, my wife and I have talked about this many times. Um, as we've gotten to know each other better, realize how very little sometimes we have in common. Sure. And how little that matters. That's right. And really, the most important things are your vision, your faith, and your character. If that is on the same page, the rest of it's irrelevant. That's true. Roger. Well, the problem is this, is, this is good preventative, but you have the people who are in that situation. Yes, sir. Okay. A friend of mine... They had sisters, both friends. You married one. Ouch. Okay. So then, it's like Greg said, you move from a friend, you have to shove that young lady, or ask that young lady to go to acquaintance because they're in the same family. Yeah. So you, you've got a problem there. How do you advise people to get out of that situation? Yeah. To take who used to be friends, you can't have them one-on-one friends anymore. Yeah. They have to move somewhere, and you don't want to insult them or make them feel bad. So that's something. Well, Roger, I, I, th- I think the sad reality is if we've, if we've built friendships with, with females, we have chosen to be forced to damage that relationship. And it's strictly the grace of God that's going to allow it to end nicely. Um, I think that what we really need to pray for is the courage to do something about it, to step up. And, you know, I, I guess we could have just about every experience um, I, I had to do it in my life, and, and I wrote, you know, a big long letter and said, hey, you know, um, you've always been a good friend to me, and I knew you long before I knew my wife, and I, this relationship simply cannot continue, and I, I know that's hard and it hurts, um, but if it's a choice between my wife or you, I've already made that choice. See you. Actually... You won't see me, <laughs> you know, and that was it. Um, so you realize some average person who just happens to listen to listen this to particular is going to think yeah. we are such a bunch of male chauvinists. Yeah, well, you know. yeah. I'm, I'm, it is the opposite. It's exactly right. It is the opposite. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like removing myself and kind of you yeah. know, kind of the out of body experience. And yeah. Yeah. Everybody else. I mean, we did the uh, we did the 
Yeah, we did the we did the the, mar- the divorce and remarriage uh, class, and and if you saw the post, I tried to lay it out and make it clear. You know, here's the perspective that we're coming from, and you know, we're not going to apologize for that. Uh, I'm going to have to do the same kind of thing here and make it clear that it just makes sense if we don't want to hurt women eventually then we should not put them in a position where we're going to have to do so. It's just the way it is. All right, got to close that out. We, got, we have no time left. Um, I do, I do want to apologize to all of you because it truly did surprise me, especially you younger men. I really thought that I had a fight on my hands. And I am so incredibly proud of each of you because it appears that you're way ahead of me and you're working on either resolving these relationships or you've already done so or you already knew not to do it. Um, I do think, to Taylor's point, we need to watch when the community is together and help each other. Nobody should be sitting by themselves. No family should be sitting alone. And no man should end up having to talk to a woman alone. So if you see it, help a brother out. Just go and sit and listen. Be friendly. We are non-threatening. But remember, you're being raised to be tzaddikim. You're being raised to be the leaders. The women are going to come and talk to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you need to orchestrate the venue under which it's appropriate. I know Greg has it. I know I get it, and I know Rick gets it. You just you get used to saying, oh, that is such a great question. Let's find a spot where we can sit down. Let me get my wife. Uh, you know, Because we're not going to do it right now. Can I talk to you after class? No. No. Let's reschedule that. I've got a better idea. You see what I mean? You just want to deflect... And massage that. So let's work on that together as a team. Let's. Last thought. Hopefully the women in the community are listening to the mentor. Absolutely. Because the counsel to us here is also the counsel to them. No question. Right? And, and I, th- I would hope that the wives are already pretty good at it. Um, and I don't think any of the wives that I know of in our community want to be putting us in a, an awkward situation, nor being in an awkward situation. Um, but how wonderful and freeing it is to have theological, high-minded, cool discussions with a couple sitting on a couch. She sit right next to her husband. I'm sitting right next to my wife. I, I may be alone, but the husband is there. You know, so it, it can work really easily, but good point. Uh, And I know the women are listening. Let me pray for you. Good Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to do things right, to be top shelf and not compromising in any of our relationships and in any of the ways that we interact with, with women. We thank you for marriage and the whole wedlock thing and pray that you'll either cause us to remain chaste, well uh, equipped to learn and grow towards marriage, or that you would 
grant us courage and great wisdom as we uh, work on the marriages that we have. I thank you for these men, Father. I ask you to bless them. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach Adonai. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah and our Lord. And all these men said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.